Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. Wow, seems like forever ago. I think back in May, where we are walking through the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and chronological order, a timeline of the events in the Gospels uh, to get a better understanding of what Jesus is saying to us in the Gospel, literally defined as the good news. And uh, we went back and said that if you are someone who don't know Jesus Christ, you have no relationship with him, then the Gospel is here's what Jesus wants to say to you. Uh, if you do know Jesus Christ and Here's what Jesus wants you to tell others about him. He wants us to share the good news. So let me ask this. Has anyone been like getting anything out of this series as we've been going along and doing it? Okay, good. I was hoping that nobody would, at least one person would say yes. Okay, good. Because um, the truth is a lot of people, they'll read the Bible and kind of forget that it's God's word to us, that he is speaking to us. Some people look at it as, oh, this is just what happened back then, and they don't see it as what God is trying to tell us on how we can live uh, now. Um, and he reveals in, in, in this word, it's, it's about himself, it's about his will for our life, uh, and it's more than just you know a historical document of things that happened, especially when it comes to the Gospels. And the passage that we're about to look at is extremely popular. If you don't know it or not familiar with it, we're going to walk through a portion of it this morning. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. How many people are familiar with? Okay, lots of people. Good, good, good. Now the word sermon doesn't actually appear in the Bible, uh, but that's what it's called. A sermon is a teaching from the Bible that's used to illustrate or uh, give instruction. And since Jesus was literally the greatest teacher that ever lived, um, he gives instruction on a whole bunch of things. He talks about the nature and the kingdom of God. Anyone ever try to figure out what is it like to live life in in the presence of God? He gives some insight into that. He talks about worship. Uh, He talks about repentance. Uh, He talks about marriage and family and social relationships. He talks about how to deal with enemies or people don't don't like you. Um, It doesn't say that he talks about how to deal with drama on your, like, Facebook book timeline. I think it's implied in how to deal with, you know, people that don't like you and all that stuff. But he talks about a lot of good stuff. And he starts out uh, by talking about blessings and woes when he starts the Sermon on the Mount. And blessings are are basically God's favor on on, on people that are trying to do uh, God's will. He says blessings for the righteous, uh, right standing in God's eyes, the people trying to do God's will. Woes it's basically a, a phrase of, um, what's the word? Let me see, I have it written down here somewhere because I didn't want to mess it up. Uh, a woe is basically a phrase of anguish, but I don't think that does it justice. It, but, but that's the best I can say. In today's vernacular, it would probably be something that you're not supposed to say in church. But it's, it's basically a woe of anguish. And he says, woe unto all these people that are rebelling against God. Now, I want to share something with you. Uh, there was a book I read, Stephen recommended it to me, called, um, wow, we talked about this for weeks. Um, I don't have enough faith to be, to be an atheist. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. 
And in that book, uh, I want to share something with you. I'm going to read this whole thing to you. It's not too long, but it's pretty interesting. It like blew me away because it takes part of what Jesus says when he's out and going woes and puts a due twist on it. So this is what it reads. It's, this is, I'm reading verbatim from the book. The United States Congress was in a rare joint session. All 435 representatives and 100 senators were in attendance. So this was written in 2004. I don't know how many representatives there are now, but that was the number then. And the C-SPAN TV cameras were rolling. Anyone ever watch C-SPAN? Wow. I thought it was like a holder place for when the remote doesn't work. You just put it there or something. Or for the, for the cable guy to say, does your cable work? I don't know. Let's put on C-SPAN because it's always on. But I didn't think people actually watched it. But, oh, okay. Okay. So the members were gathered together to hear a speech by a descendant of George Washington. But what they thought would be a polite speech of patriotic historical reflections quickly turned into a televised tongue lashing. With a wagging finger and stern looks, Washington's seventh-generation grandson declared, Woe to you, egotistical hypocrites. You are full of greed and self-indulgence. Everything you do is done for appearances. You make pompous speeches and grandstand before these TV cameras. You demand the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats wherever you go. You love to be greeted in your districts and have everyone call you senator or congressman. On the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You say you want to clean up Washington, but as soon as you get here, you become twice as much a son of hell as the one you replaced. Twice as much a son of hell as the one you replaced. I only repeated that because you never get to say hell in church, so I said it twice. (laughs) Woe to you, makers of the law, you hypocrites. You do not practice what you preach. You put heavy burdens on the citizens, but then opt out of your own laws. Woe to you, federal fools. You take an oath to support and defend the Constitution, but then you nullify the Constitution by allowing judges to make up their own laws. Woe to you, blind hypocrites. You say that if you had lived in the days of the founding fathers, you never would have taken part with them in slavery. You say you never would have agreed that slaves were the property of their masters, but would have insisted that they were human beings with unalienable rights. But you testify against yourselves because today you say that unborn children are the property of their mothers and have no rights at all. Upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed in this country. You snakes, you brood of vipers, you have left this great chamber desolate. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Now, obviously, this never took place because you guys would have already heard about it and it'd be clips all over your Facebook timelines and time feeds. But this is the kind of thing that Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, and the author of that book took it and said, well, what would it look like if someone were to say that to the political, and you could say the religious leaders, of our day? But the most powerful thing about the Sermon on the Mount is not the woes, it's not even the blessings, it's the freedom that it brings. Because Jesus Christ basically addresses 
all of these laws and rituals and things that have been put in place for people to try to live by. God wants people to live in a way that is pleasing in his sight. He wants us to have life to the full. And so he had laws put in place, but those laws were, one, to reveal who he is, and two, to show that you can't live life without me. But in order to make those laws more livable, the Jewish leaders had put in like 613 other laws. They had put in a bunch of other things that you had to do in order to try to live up to those laws. So in order to try to obey the law, you had to obey all these other laws that they made up. Does that make sense? So if you've ever pulled up to a stop sign and the cop has said, well, you were rolling, and you were like, I wasn't rolling, I stopped. So they put in rules that said, okay, now when you pull up to the stop sign, you must stop. You have to count to three seconds. And then once you've counted to three seconds, then you're free to look both ways, count to three again before you proceed. It makes sense, but what happens when you don't do the three seconds because there's nobody around for miles except a Jewish leader or a religious leader who says, whoa, 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 stop, you didn't do the three seconds. And, you know, it, it, it got to the point where not only were the laws unable to be lived up to, but the laws that led to the laws were unable to be lived up to. And Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount said, hey, there is freedom from trying to obey all of these laws that lead to the laws that lead to the laws. And most of the people, you know, common sense, most people want to do the right thing. They want to live in right standing with everybody else. They want to go out. They want to, uh, you know, enjoy their life, have a good family, do the right thing. Not everybody. But what they had put in place were laws that made it in order to do the right thing. It was kind of like um, pushing a rock up a hill with the goal of getting the rock to the top, but you're pushing it on a treadmill. Anyone ever been on a treadmill? You're not going anywhere. But that's what they were doing. They were like, okay, I'm going to keep pushing this rock. If I get the rock to the top, then I've abided by the law. I'm good. I'm doing the right thing. But if you're on a treadmill, you're never going to reach the top. Make sense? So Jesus came and he said, you know, we need to do away with the treadmill and we need to do away with the rock and we need to do away with the hill because it shouldn't be that much work involved. So what he came, and as we read through this, you're going to see, he says, you have heard it said, which is what they used to try to adhere to the law, but then he would offer this freedom and say, but I say to you and reveal this spiritual truth that would give them freedom to be able to live uh, in a way that was pleasing. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Now, Luke also records this, but we're going to walk through uh, Matthew chapter 5 and drop down to verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the chair to the left or right of you, front of you, somewhere. And if not, just raise your hand and we'll have someone uh, bring you a Bible. And some of your Bibles, depending on what version you read, they have little headings that talk about all of the things that uh, he begins to talk about. So he starts off in verse 13 and he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. He goes on and he says in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, 
They put it on the stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, uh, what he's saying here is that he's talking to people, and he's saying, you're the salt. And if you know anything about salt, we don't use it as much as a preservative today. They did back then. But we use it to add flavor. Anybody watch a cooking, any cooking channel, any cooking competition, salt adds flavor. It adds spice. It adds something. So it changes what was bland into something more palatable and more enjoyable. And he says, that's us. We're the salt. We're supposed to add life to this world, take what is bland, add a little bit of spice to it, make life more palatable. But here's the problem. If you're trying to obey all these laws, um, it's not palatable. Now, here's the thing. This is the interesting thing. Um, I don't know if you know a lot of history about what was going on at that time, but these were people that he were talking to who were being overtaxed. I'm not just making this up because this is what you hear about today. They were being overtaxed. Uh, They were being um, oppressed uh, by um, not just the Roman government, but also underneath the Roman government, there was a Jewish government in place, uh, what they call tetrarchs or or, um, the Herodian dynasty. uh, And they were in place kind of working hand in hand with the Roman government. So they were overtaxed. They were being oppressed. And even though they were in their own land, they had no say. They had to follow whatever Rome said. And these are the people who are overtaxed, feel like I don't have enough money, no one's listening to what I say, my voice is not being heard, my religious freedoms are being stamped upon, but Jesus says to them, but you're the light. You're still, in in this context, he's telling them, you're the light, and you're the ones who are supposed to add flavor. And then he talks to them about, and he makes it clear, I'm not here to do away with the law, okay? He says, I'm not here to to wipe away uh, all the Jewish law, the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, and put in something new. He says, I am here to fulfill the law. Literally, through me, you'll be able to do all those things that you couldn't do before without having to try to obey the laws that lead to laws. Does that make sense? I mean, it, it sounds a little confusing, but basically he's saying, I get it. There's law after law. You're pushing a rock up the hill on a treadmill. Through me, I'm going to do away with the rock. I'm going to do away with the treadmill. You're the salt. You're the light. You're going to make life more palatable, more enjoyable. And through me, instead of trying to push the rock up the hill on a treadmill, we're just going to go and live life at the top of the hill. That, that, that's what he's saying. I'm here to fulfill the law, okay? So, drop down to verse 5, or excuse me, drop down to verse 21, and here's what he says next. He starts talking about murder. Some of your your Bibles will have murder or killing. Uh, Verse 21, he says, you have heard, again, you have heard it said, he says, you have heard that was said to the people long ago, do not murder. That's one of the commandments. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Now, uh, here he's talking about 
uh, one of the commandments, and do not murder. But Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart, you've already murdered. And the Jews had a very, uh, very harsh stipulation against killing someone else, murdering. They had things of same as we do today, what's considered murder, what's considered killing. And there's a stipulation. If you look, if a soldier gets sent out to war, uh, they're killing people on the battlefield. It's not considered murder. If I get mad at John because he took my garlic bread at the dinner and I kill him, that's considered murder. Not if the garlic bread's really good, but it's considered murder. So there's, there's a difference if, if a law enforcement official goes out and in order to stop, you know, Kevin from killing everyone in the church, they take his life. It's not considered murder. It's considered killing. It's justifiable. If Kevin's trying to kill me, hopefully someone kills him first. I wouldn't consider that murder. I'd consider it justifiable, court of law, however they see it. But you understand there's a difference, right? Okay, so uh, what he was saying was, hey, this thing about murder, there was, there was the ways that the Jewish people looked at. If, if I don't kill John because he took my garlic bread, but I get angry at him and hate him and gossip about him and no longer are, am in fellowship with him, first of all, I hope this is really good garlic bread, But second of all, then Jesus is saying, hey, that is the same as killing him because you hate your brother in your heart. And he says uh, there was no stipulation for hating someone. And so people would walk around and, you know, they'd have the feeling of I want to kill you because you took my ox or you took my parking spot or this, that and the other. But. They, I didn't kill you, so I'm right in God's eyes. And Jesus was saying, no, you're, you're back on the treadmill trying to balance out these two things. And he said, here's the freedom. Go be reconciled to John. Have John make you some more garlic bread. And then you get rid of the killing. You get rid of the hatred. You're reconciled to your brother. You go on. You go back to being the salt. You go back to living, you know, the spice of life, living life at the top. Instead of trying to figure out, as some people do, and I'm not, but some people do, especially when people leave churches, they spend time trying to avoid the people from the church they left in like the grocery store. I see people in the grocery store that have left here and I see them do quick like 180s, like, like I'm going to handcuff them and drag them back here. I'm, all I'm going to do is say, hey, God bless, how you doing? And, and you know, if I'm shopping or especially if I'm eating, I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to keep eating. But you know, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. We're gonna, still going to, you know, see each other at, at the foot of Jesus. And I can't say, well, I'm not going to worship at the foot of Jesus because John is worshiping at the foot of Jesus because, you know, if we're going to do this for eternity, some millennia ago, he took a piece of garlic bread. But there are people that, that let these things separate him. And Jesus said, hey, if you have that much angst and hate, you're just as guilty as if you killed them. You're separated. You've killed that relationship that is supposed to be for eternity and it doesn't exist anymore. So he says, hey, be reconciled and there is freedom and being reconciled. This is how um, John puts it in the book of 1 John. He says, if anyone sees, or excuse me, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's just it. He says, you're lying, uh, you, you're just out and out not telling the truth. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John is saying, how in the world can you say, I've never seen God, but I love him with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. But I see John every single day, but I got no love for him because he took my garlic bread. You guys better have garlic bread at this dinner. <laughs> but this is, this is, I mean, that's, that's what John is saying. He said, it doesn't make sense. You're lying. How can you not love people who you see every day, who you fellowship every day, your neighbors who live around you every day, your coworkers who may get on your nerves, your roommates who may drive you crazy, your, your, your family members, you know, uh, a lot of people did grilling. And so you have family come in from out of town that you can only put up for this much time with. And then you're like, all right, got to go. Time to go back because you're glad to see him go because you're at your limit. But he says, how can you now? Don't get me wrong. We're going to have disagreements. We're not all perfect. We're going to disagree on things. We're going to argue. We're not going to see things face to face. And I have said over and over, and I will continue to say from the pulpit that I'm human. I'm going to say something that offends somebody, not intentionally. I'm going to say something that someone doesn't agree with and it makes them mad. It is not my intention to offend anyone or make anyone mad, but that should not terminate or kill the relationship that we have as brothers or sisters in Christ. We should be able to reconcile, get past that, put that aside, and still move on with our relationships. So John says you can't love God while hating others, all right? Drop down to verse 27. And he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. In his heart, sorry, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I'm going to jump into verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And here in, in our Bibles, we have divisions that make us stop and transfer to another thought. So uh, if you have a Bible where it has the title of um, adultery, and then you have a Bible that has the title of divorce, and then you have the Bible of, it has the title of oaths, you tend to mentally stop and say, now he's talking about a different topic. He's talking about all one topic because he's talking about adultery and he goes right into divorce and then he goes into keeping your oath because he's talking about adultery, which literally means um, breaking wedlock, uh, where God says one of the commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, which in the Hebrew is actually no adultery, no breaking wedlock is what it literally means in the Hebrew. Um, and then he goes into divorce because what was happening was people were, um, if there wasn't any um, marital unfaithfulness, and the Greek word for unfaithfulness is pornea, where we get the word pornography, meaning something sexual, people had reasons for which they could divorce. One group of people had the mindset, you can only divorce if there's unfaithfulness. Another group of people had the mindset, you could divorce, and they had a list 
again, of laws eating up to the law. So if, she, if, if your spouse, your wife, uh, didn't have a hot dinner ready, uh, you could divorce her. Uh, if <laughs> People would do this today. If your in-laws didn't like her, you could divorce her. Again, people would do that today. Anyway, they had a whole list of reasons because they were trying to figure out, well, what constitutes, you know, being unfaithful or, 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 and so they made up this list and Jesus said, you're not getting it. And this whole paragraph is all about one. Uh, if she's, if, and saying she, cause that was generally the one they would, the way they would do it. If she was unfaithful, um, he says, if, if, let me put it in judge, anyone watch judge Judy or, uh, what's yes, honey, uh, people's court because Judge Millie Allen is really good at explaining stuff. This is the way she puts it. A marriage is a contract, okay? So from this perspective, if you divorced, that means your husband, you nullify the contract, but it's not for unfaithfulness, then according to Judge Millie Allen, based on what God had laid out, you're still under contractual obligation. So if I say, hey, I'm going to divorce Christy and it's not for marital unfaithfulness, according to God's perspective, what Jesus just said, well, you're technically still on the contract. So now if she goes off and some single guy marries her, he makes her an adulteress because she's still legally under contract because she didn't legally break the contract, even though I said I'm going to divorce her. And God brings that back to talking about divorce and he brings it back to keeping your word. And the marital commitment was one of the strongest bonds that they had. But people were finding ways to break it. And there are people today who will say, well, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand. How could God ask someone, you know, why should you stay married to someone you don't love? Why should you stay married to someone who you fall out of love with? And it's not that God is mean. It's not that he wants you to be with someone. It's that God has the mindset that he has always had. He loved us when we were his enemies. He didn't divorce himself from us just because we didn't see eye to eye with him. And there are still people today who, and I don't know how they do this, people who say, I don't believe in God, but yet they hate him with a passion. And I'm like, how can you hate someone you don't believe in? Where's all this anger that you have towards this God that doesn't exist? And those are the people that God loves with a passion. He didn't give up on them. And he goes on over and over throughout the rest of this. We're going to wrap this up and we'll hit more of this next week. He goes on throughout the rest of this. And what he's trying to get us to see is that through him, yes, we're able to fulfill the law. Through him, we have freedom instead of trying to obey all these laws that lead up to the law. But through him, we can freely reflect his love. When we go out in our family relationships, we go out in our work relationships, when we go out in our interactions with people, when we go out and post stuff on our Facebook, people should be able to see God in us and God through us. There's a a song, I'm going to play this video for you that probably says it way better than I do. And hopefully we won't have as many technical difficulties. And while this plays, I'm going to ask the band to come up, and then we're, we're going to spend some, uh, a few minutes in prayer uh, after this video. If it...
Okay, I'm going to ask Honey to click on the video and start it that way. Lord, just let us do the best we can this morning so that we can uplift you and lift your name up. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Take away the melodies. Take away the songs I sing. Take away all the lies It's all the songs you let me write Does the man I am today Say the words you need to say Let them see
I'm going to ask you guys to stand if we can spend a moment in prayer. God's ultimate desire is that in every interaction we would freely reflect his love. That even though we may disagree when we do have enemies, that rather than me reflecting the wrath of Floyd, which would be a really great movie, that I reflect the love of Christ. That in in family relationships, in work relationships, in everything that we do, that we would freely reflect his love. That we're not bound trying to push rocks up hills on treadmills, trying to obey a series of laws, but we are allowing his love to work through us and in us and into the lives of those people around us. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Actually, before you bow your heads, look up, look up for a minute. Would you grab the hand of someone sitting next to you and go next to someone if you're not next to someone? And Because this is the greatest strength we have in reflecting the love of Christ is in doing it together with each other. So now I'm just going to ask, um, could you guys just play, I don't know, something God, our prayer is that in every interaction that we have in our family, in our home, in our workplace, uh, no matter where it is, that we would freely and powerfully reflect your amazing love. That in, in our, our homes, with our family members, even though sometimes we are quick to wrath, that we would be quick to love. That with our coworkers, where uh, we don't have any patience, God, that you would give us amazing patience. That in our friendships and in, in our people that we interact with on a daily basis in our circle of influence, that we would see those as opportunities to let your love flow through us. And that day to day, as we're struggling to do what is right, to live uh, life in a way that is pleasing to you, that we would not see it as a struggle, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would live life to the fullest. That we would be that salt, that we would be that light, that we would show the way, that we would be the people of God that influences this world. God, and if we're here and we do have people that we're at odds with, whether it be in our marriages, whether it be in our friendships, in our relationships, in our family, we pray that you would allow us through your Holy Spirit to be reconciled. That we make our homes a sacred place where you are Lord and where we offer our lives up as an offering to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Pray that you have an awesome Sunday. Uh, See everyone next week. God bless.